0: Welcome to the Journal of the Southwest radio podcast, a production of the University of Arizona Southwest Center and the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences. I'm Jeff Bannister. Today I'm speaking with Brian Powell, who has spent the past two decades working to understand and protect biodiversity in the Sonoran Desert of Southern Arizona. Powell's quest began in the late 1990s when he was a graduate student at the University of Arizona studying wildlife ecology he went on to work for several years as a field biologist with the University of Arizona and the National Park Service, where he oversaw a biological inventory of plants and animals in nine National Park Service units, both in Arizona and in New Mexico. In 2007, he was tapped by and Behan to develop a biological monitoring program for Pima County and to develop other activities that align with the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan. He now serves as a Pima County Park Superintendent with the county's Natural Resources, Parks, and Recreation Department. In this interview, Powell describes the efforts leading to the county's innovative approach to preserving open space, starting in the late 1990s. This was a time of fast-paced housing development, especially on Tucson's northwest side. Environmentalists were pushing for stronger controls on growth. At the same time, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service placed the cactus ferruginous pygmy owl on the endangered species list a move that forced developers, environmentalists, ranchers, researchers, and county officials to come together and hash out what would become the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan. I asked Powell about this difficult and interesting process, about the philosophy and approach of the plan, and also about the current state of the Sonoran Desert in the face of fast-paced climate change and land conversion. My interview with Brian Powell is the first in our two-part series focused on conservation in southern Arizona. The second interview will be with my colleague here in the Southwest Center, Tom Sheridan, who helped shape the original Sonoran Desert Protection Plan. Brian Powell, welcome to JSW Radio. It's great to be here, Jeff.
1: Thanks for asking me to come.
0: You bet. Great to have you. So um, I think people should know that you and I have been friends since the last millennium, uh, and over the course of that, what it's been 20, uh, 22 or three years now. Um, I've known you to be somebody who's uh, deeply engaged with with the fate of the Sonoran Desert, and you're also somebody who uh, not only you know knows that from your you know the point of view of your desktop, but you are out in the world often, um, out in the field, as it were. Um, and I, I've always really appreciated just talking, you know, our conversations about what's happening in, uh, in and around us here in Tucson in the, in the Sonoran Desert. So I thought I might ask you first, what are you seeing out there, and what do you think it is that makes this Sonoran Desert such, a, such an amazing place?
1: Yeah, yeah, Jeff, I've, I've been in Tucson for, uh, this is my 25th year, and uh, I grew up in British Columbia in Vancouver, and I love it up there. I love the the rain, and and the trees. Um, but when I came to the desert, I just fell in love with this place in the way that a lot of people do. The open sky and the, the ability to walk anywhere you want to walk. You can't do that in the Northwest. and uh, But just the, the biodiversity here is just absolutely amazing. I came to Tucson to get a graduate degree at the University of Arizona, studying birds originally. And just birds alone have you know, some of the highest uh, diversity of birds in North America here in southern Arizona and Sonoran Desert. And we have the highest diversity of, of bees in the world here in the desert. Hmm. And really, there are really a couple things going on that are so exciting um, from the biodiversity perspective. One is the Sonoran Desert itself, of course, is this desert with this bimodal precipitation. It's the only desert in North America with where we get rain in the winter and we get rain in the summer. We're flanked by the Mojave Desert to the west and Chihuahuan Desert to the east. And so we have species that are found in both of those deserts. But we also have this elevational range. So we go from the valley floors in Tucson to top of Mount Lemmon. And the biotic communities are completely different. So you have this sort of east to west, north north to south. We have the influence of the Sierra Madre from Mexico, uh, from the Rocky Mountains. So, for species like the black bear, uh, have their southern distribution in southern Arizona and, and northern Mexico. And we have species coming up from Mexico, the coati is a relatively recent addition here, and the javelina, are relatively recent. So, we just have this incredible mix of species from east to west, from valley bottoms to the top. And as a biologist coming to this region, it's, it's just absolutely one of the most exciting places to work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that geography and, and the desert itself also has sort of a cultural element too. And Jeff, you've, you've spent your career sort of thinking about the influences of the environment on, on the cultural identity here. Mm-hmm. And so we have um, this great community. And it's one of the reasons why I'm here is because of the larger sort of Tucson community who are really engaged in that interface between the environment and, um, you know, and wanting to be here, living here and having that cultural identity. So it's Mm -hmm. really just amazing mix.
0: So, so basically we have this kind of uh, articulation of, you know, elevational diversity uh, lending itself to, um, you know, to biological diversity and, you know, shaping of that. And then on top of that or mixed in with all of that is the, is the pretty incredible cultural diversity of Tucson. So as a biologist that's drawn you in um, to the kind of, uh, you know, to the work, the pretty uh, amazing work that's been happening in Tucson for a long time, which is trying to uh, protect habitat. So what I wanted to ask you about here is the, you know, the emergence of the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan, which uh, as you've noted at times is a, is a pretty ambitious uh, project. And I, I'm kind of wondering, so what are the conditions that led to that? And, you know, what was the problem around which that whole thing uh, emerged and was framed? What got it started?
1: Yeah, well, if we go back in time to the to the 80s and the 90s, at that time, there was a lot of contention around development projects and large development in our region. And part of it really, really stemmed from people's sense of place in the desert. And their love of the desert, just kind of what I was describing from my experience, and was held by thousands of people who, when a new development came up to the board of supervisors at the county level, were very concerned about the impacts of this really, really rampant development. In the early nineties, we were one of the fastest-growing regions of the country, and so there was a lot of concern about what does this development mean for the amazing diversity that i talked about earlier Mm -hmm. and really the 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 catalyst for all this uh sonora desert conservation plan that we'll talk about the different elements of really started with the um, u.s fish and wildlife service listing the cactus pygmy owl as an endangered species Mm -hmm. in 1997 Mm -hmm. and that really really um woke people a lot of people up to this rapid development and the, the biodiversity that I talked about. So this is a, a small owl that is still in our region. It's no longer listed, but at the time, uh, it occurred up in the northwest side of town where a lot of development was happening. And mm-hmm. so there was a lot of uncertainty that was thrown into the, the developers at that time. So if you wanted to build a, a project, let's say a, a housing development you had to do all kinds of monitoring, you had to determine was the owl there, and so forth. And so it really got the county in particular interested in, okay, well, this listing of the cactus fruginous pig meal, we could kind of sort of deal with this in a way by creating a a single species management and monitoring program for this one particular species. Mm -hmm. But let's not forget we have a lot of other species here that could be listed. And, and so we need a much more holistic plan for how to balance development and, and natural resource conservation. Mm-hmm. And that was really the start of what became the Sonora Desert Conservation Plan, which and I'm not being hyperbolic here to say that the SDCP is the most ambitious large scale conservation plan of of any local jurisdiction in the United States, especially scaled for our tax base. And I'll talk in a few minutes kind of what are the different elements were, but to set the stage was a community that really cared about their sense of, you know, the the natural environment and, um, and the development that was occurring that was threatening sort of that sense of place and that pride and, you know, our environment. If you look at some of the uh, studies and surveys that have been done, that's to snore in Desert and the, the desert environment, one of the main reasons why people want to be here and love to be here. So the county really began that process then in 1997 to develop the SDCP.
0: And if, if we could just step back here too, can you talk a little bit about And I mean, I know you weren't living in Tucson at this time, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about the context leading up to this, the development context. Uh, You know, I've read several different um, accounts of that moment, like the 70s to the, what, mid-1990s, more or less. My colleague here in the Southwest Center, Dave Yetman, was on the Pima County Board of Supervisors for I think 12 years, uh, the, the, you know, kind of in those critical years of go-go years of development. But I read recently that during that time, more or less 25 years, 75 to, you know, the 90s more or less, that there are almost no zoning challenges at the level of the board of supervisors. That is that, that development was just sort of uh, gobbling out the desert <laughs> um, and, and pretty much had a free hand more or less to, to do that. Do you know much about that context? Yeah, that was my understanding. Jeff is that it, the
1: the time when David Yetman was there, they called it the four and one, the four and one years. With Yetman being, you know, maybe the um, David being the the sort of lone dissent on some of these development projects. And you're right; I think they they every every rezoning that came before the supervisors was was approved. The county governments are a subdivision of the state, and um, we have certain powers that are. Granted to us by the state, one of the really important functions is um, regarding land use and how we zone for land use. So every single parcel in the county has a designation for density of development, type of development, and so forth. And a lot of the county is designated as rural development, which means you can you can have um, so I think that that's four one 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 house per four acres. So if you if you uh, your parcel is designated as um, rural and you want to uh, put more houses on it, you have to go for the board of Supervisors and rezone that, that property. I see and it. so that was that's what was happening was where a lot of these large developments they come in, they take these relatively quite cheap land in the exurban areas, they upzone; they can put more houses on it. And, um, and that was the, what was happening over and over and over again. And this occurred in the seventies and eighties and this whole savings and loan crisis. And it was just, it was the go-go days of development. And that's really what kind of set the stage was the County wanting to have a more comprehensive approach to land use planning that preserved the environment and and just created much a much less sort of contentious environment around every time there was uh, properties were rezoned.
0: I see. So that time was sort of a you kind of had a heady brew of an influx of or availability of cheap capital. The northwest side, I, I I'm sure was was kind of open territory, of the development frontier at that time, uh, un- unincorporated area, right uh, of You're right. of Tucson, exactly. Uh, Right. And then, uh, yeah. And then, of course, uh, increasing consciousness, I would say, too, from what I can see in, t- in my conversations with you as well, just about the, you know, the, the problems that that was creating in the Tucson Basin as well for, for biodiversity.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, so that was that was the foundation. Um, and then the um, and then the pig owl comes along and all of a sudden, the, that was the first sort of wrench in, in that process of just unsupervised if you will development
0: and was there a politics to the um the declaration uh, for lack of a better? what's the word it's listed the listing of the pygmy owl on the part of uh fish and wildlife or how does that how, how did that process how did the pygmy owl uh, come into view as as part of all of this
1: I don't really know how much politics plays a role. I think the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they looked at the information that they had. Mm -hmm. Um, They said this is an owl that occurs just in a few places in the United States. And where it occurs in many areas outside of the Tahana Atam Nation, um, there was development occurring. And so the threats were there. And they made a determination to list it. It's hit that particular species has gone back and forth over the years. And it, it's quite contentious. These listing processes, this Fish and Wildlife Service will get sued by an environmental organization or, or the homeowners association, so forth. So it's, you know, I'm sure there are politics involved, but the bottom line was that there was concern about the, the fate of this particular owl. And in fact, my understanding is right now that they, there, there are no pig on the Northwest side of Tucson anymore. The development is just, there's just too much development there. that's my understanding. Wow.
2: It. Wow.
0: So the, so the pig meow, um, listing then kind of catalyzed a bigger conversation, part of which was the, the uncertainty in the development process that, that listing was creating, as you said. Uh, and then uh, also the, clearly listing a species is, is about much more than just the species it's about habitat awareness on the part of uh, wildlife biologists and others that development was just you know eating up a lot of land so how um, how did the conversation get off how did it get started yeah
1: well the county realized county leadership realized that we we needed a bigger a bigger process to really um, look Further into the future to, to get some certainty for the development community. And, and the county is a developer as well, as you just know, you know, we we build roads and, and, and sewage treatment plants and other infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So the uncertainty related to the pygmyow was not just for the homeowner, uh, the, the home builder community, mm-hmm. but also for the county as well. We want some certainty looking into the future so that we can do the work that we need to do to serve the, the community. And so that realization of biodiverse region, biodiverse area, and we have a lot of development, let's think much, much more broadly about protection and balancing development. So what happened was the, uh, the county leadership, uh, Mr. Huckleberry and the board of supervisors, with the Board of Supervisors support really started this deep, deep conversation about economic development, about natural world, uh, natural environment, and natural processes. So whereby they created a steering committee first of all. the steering committee was made up of over 80 members, which is, which is just amazing to me when I think about wow. it today. And, and the reason one of the things that uh, maybe behan, was the sort of architect of Sonora Desert Conservation Plan. I got to work with Mavine before she passed away in 2009. I worked with her for a few years. Mm-hmm. It was really a highlight. One of the highlights of my career was, was spending time with her. And and I asked her once, why, you know, why, why the 80 members? And she said, but that was basically, they would let anybody in to be on the steering committee for Sonora Desert Conservation Plan, but they had to... They had to attend a whole host of meetings that they brought in experts and like conservation biology experts, experts in genetics to sort of educate the steering committee about some of the issues that we're dealing with when we deal with natural resource conservation in the face of development and things like bottlenecks and when you when you cut off a species what a two different populations, um, well, what does that mean for the particular species, and so forth. So they called it the boot camp, and 80 people were, went to meetings over, over weekends, um, weeknights. You know, there were just dozens and dozens of meetings, but anybody who made it through all of those meetings was then on a steering committee, and the steering committee was uh, homeowners, mining communities, environmentalists, ranching community, it was, it was anybody who wanted to join. Mm-hmm. And so that steering committee then saw the process through all the way from 1997 at the beginning, all the way to 2003. In addition, what the county did was they also created these advisory groups. Uh, one was a science and technical advisory team. And another, which I hope we'll, we'll swing back to a little bit later, was related to the ranch ranching community. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the opportunities for natural resource conservation today are at that interface with uh, ranch lands and the ranching community. So whereas back in the 90s and 80s, there was a lot of contention between environmentalists and the ranching community, there became a realization in the late 90s that we actually had a lot in common and that we needed to be at the table uh, with the, the ranchers and environmental community need to be at the table together, because we were talking about conservation in, in the same spaces, in the same sort of physical geographic spaces. Mm-hmm. The larger pieces of undeveloped land, um, were that hold the most value for biodiversity.
0: And what and were so, the? Uh, sorry, may I interrupt? Yeah. Just what were the yeah. dynamics of the um, of the ranching sector that you know of at this moment? What was Um, you know what are some of the things that are propelling pushing ranchers to the to the table to discuss these issues
1: well that could be a that could be a a discussion an hour-long discussion in and of itself Um, Mm -hmm. it's a really it's a great question and and one of the things that was happening at that time was there was so much development that ranchers were were they were getting a lot of offers they were getting a lot of you know sell your land to us and at the same time there's a lot of pride in that community about um, who they are and, and and how they make their living and their con- and their their deep connection to the land and a l- lot of their interests were brought forward to say hey you know we actually we would like to keep these ranches as open space we would like to pass the ranch down to the kids if, if that's what they want to do and so it wasn't universal. But we heard from a lot of ranchers at the time that, you know, we want to be at the table, we don't want to be told what to do, we want to be invited to the table. And we want to be given the opportunity to to have our say in the process, and possibly transition from the land ownership of, of the private land to ownership by the county. And that's one of the things that happened in the SDCP.
0: I see. And was the that this opening, you know, in the midst of this very complex set of dynamics between, um, you know, zoning, uh, land development, and ranching, were ranchers and uh, conservationists, uh, environmentalists, already starting to come to the table um, before the pygmy was listed, or is this something that that really started to ha- uh, to happen around the development of the SDCP?
1: In our area, my understanding, Jeff, is that that it really was this the ranching technical team that was um, headed by Tom Sheridan that really began those important conversations that that brought them to the table. And I think they felt they that they felt heard and valued in, in that process. And as a result, Jumping ahead here a little bit, after the bond elections in 2005, where the county went to the taxpayers and said, among other things, we would like to preserve some of the land in, in eastern Pima County in particular, And the and the taxpayers, you know, the voters said yes, overwhelmingly said yes to these bonds, and we went out and purchased land. The first and most important areas we went to were some of the ranching communities saying, would you sell your land to us? We'll maintain ranching on that, on those properties. And we were able to, because of the SCCP process say, like we're not going to buy this land from you as ranchers and then just kick you off and say, okay, no more ranching. We are. And to this day, 2022, All but one of our ranches have active cattle ranching on them today, and we purchased 13 different ranches at that
0: time. Wow, so um, I'm sure part of the plan, though, involves uh, the number of animals that can be run on a given swath of land or number of animals per uh, acre. Is that part of the plan, or how does it work with the ranchers then?
1: Yeah, we have certain standards and guidelines, what we call them, for ensuring that we don't overgraze, and and that's one of the things that we have a we have a range program here in Natural Resources Parks and Recreation, where, where I work, um, we have a range program that works with our operators, the ranch operators, to make sure that we we're monitoring those lands and and that we're working with the ranchers to to pull cows off when. Certain thresholds are met, so we don't want to create, you know, eat, eat the grasses right down to the nub. We want to get to cut the cows off. And mm-hmm. so that's a, that's an ongoing conversation that we have with our ranching, um, with our ranch partners.
0: Well, let's maybe we can return a second to the process itself. Uh, yeah. and talk a little bit more about, um, and I know you were present for a lot of this. What, what were your observations during that time, if you remember back, or what were you seeing in terms of people? It seems like part of the thing was to develop a common understanding of the problem and a common set of terms to, to talk about it. Does that, does that seem about right?
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, that's right, Jeff. And at that, that time, There was, we really were understanding, we we really had enough information that where we knew that, you know, when you build these developments, there are certain impacts on the species. It's important to remember that we also want to think about natural processes. So, for example, we think about uh, floodplains and making sure that in natural areas that. We allow flooding to occur in in natural river channels, for example. We try to protect overbank protection where where floods can go up over their banks and, and not cause major damage. So keeping natural processes in place feeds back to the habitat for the species that we're talking about. So it was a very holistic planning process that really kind of pulled in a lot of different disciplines, hydrology and and biology, for example, to really understand that we're not just protecting these properties for for the species themselves. We're protecting the property also for for recreation. We're protecting it for for flood protection, for example. And an, an interesting thing, important outcome of the SDCP and in the protection of these natural areas is that the flood insurance rates for Pima County are much, much lower. We get a 30% discount for flood insurance rates in our area because we have a certain percentage of our lands are protected and, and that those natural processes can occur so that we don't get these massive floods and so that's just one of the sort of outgrowths of the work of the SDCP and other work that our flood control district has done, um, that kind of built on the information that that really kind of got going during during the SDCP time.
0: So that uh, reduction in flood insurance premiums, you're saying that that is partly a result of the plan, which has a, a built up the kind of the or protected, I guess, the absorption capacity of the landscape in the in the midst of monsoon rains or lo- or winter rains as well that's what that's why that's happened
1: yeah that's right so we we purchased sianiger just as an example we purchased mm-hmm. sianiger creek natural preserve in the 1980s so before the sdcp times and we were we really 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 recognized the importance of protecting natural areas to allow natural processes to happen so that so that if so that when floods especially come along that there are natural areas that absorb the water, that infiltrate the water, that protect the downstream environment.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that one of the things that has really um, been important for me, just to to understand this whole process, uh, is, I mean, listening to you speak right now, but also just doing some background reading for this interview, is that, you know, you are all dealing with an incredible matrix of, uh, of elements here to bring all of this together. And you're, I know you were just alluding to that. So you have the different values of stakeholders. Um, sometimes those were or can be really seen as in uh, contradiction to one another. Uh, and then, of course, the, the flows of the landscape. And I think that one of the things that I really appreciate about learning more about the plan is that I can really see how challenging it is to protect habitat because it's, you can't, you can't um, disembed a habitat from its broader flow processes of flow. And I think that that's one of the things that that really strikes me as having been pretty successful about this plan is, as you say, looking at it in a, in a kind of a holistic way, but you had 80 people who were committed to the process. That's pretty amazing, especially considering the boot camp you were talking about. There must have been some pretty contentious moments, I would imagine, as well as people kind of hashed out some of these contradictions and differences. Did that? Did, did some of that pop up in your experience of of this uh, putting together this plan?
1: Yeah, I should say that when when the most work was done on the plan, I was not at Pima County, so I should I should note that or working for Pima County. But yes that's right there there really were very contentious debates there was you know stories and i've seen video of sort of yelling at at these meetings because there was a lot at stake there was there were really big ideas being put out about natural resource conservation and at the same time what what amazed me about the stories and it's really important i think for for dealing with today with any of the issues that we have today are that it's hard to be really, really angry at people that you get to know. And Mm -hmm. through the process, people sat down who were very different politically or they, they were on different sides of a particular issue, but they did get to know each other. And I think there was a certain strength that was produced in that process of listening and learning and struggling through it. That when we came out the other end and we we had money, as I mentioned, through the bonds and we were spending it, there really was no contention at that point. Um, there was just you know just a few sort of voices that maybe even weren't at the table originally, and um, and so we we've had very little sort of you know pushback from a, a lot of um, sectors of of the economy and and from from the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan, I think because there, partly there is a real, real understanding of that integration you're, you're talking about. That the idea that, for example, that when people buy properties outside of the Tucson area, they they want to have natural open space for walking their dogs and and general sort of enjoyment, and and we've certainly seen some of the developers who you know they market some of these. Some of these projects, as uh, you know, close proximity to nature and be able to walk in nature and, and be in nature, and and so I think we we really saw sort of a confluence of understanding around those different sectors of the economy and and needs of the community. That that is pretty amazing. I think about it today.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, and some right, especially when you think about it today. I was just wondering as you were talking if this would be even possible to think about <laughs> in, in a moment such as the one we're in right now. Although I, I, I tend to think that the Tucson in this regard remains a pretty, uh, pretty special place. <laughs> I hope.
1: Yeah, I think, I think again, it, it really gets back to that sense of who we are here and, and why we're here. And I, and I think that the natural environment, the cultural history is really a, an important part of our sense of
0: place. Yeah, I agree. I definitely agree with that. I want to ask you a little bit about the the process uh, um, of how the land is protected and then how the county interacts with developers. You know, how does somebody actually propose a new development in the light of the regulations that the SDCP um, sets forth? We had, uh, as you said, we had the bond a very sizable bond election in 2004-2005, somewhere in there, right? Yeah. Well, so that allowed for, that generated funds to to purchase uh, open space, uh, about 180, close to 180 million dollars worth. So that has all happened. So how is it functioning now?
1: Yeah. So there are really two prongs to the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan. I'll, I'll talk about the the land conservation in just a moment, but I want to back up even a little bit further in time to 2001.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And what happened at that time was that, um, so every, every 10 years or so counties need to develop and revamp their, what's called the comprehensive plan. And this is a sort of a broad, broad view, uh, that each County has to take, um, about how they're going to look at land open space land they, they looked at all kinds of things community health and, and so forth and what the county did was they and this is where the this is where I think we, we can talk about how how sort of forward thinking they were the, the board of supervisors is that they embedded into the comprehensive plan process an entirely new way of for the rezoning kind of bring conversation back to the rezoning whereby when a, a developer approaches the border supervisors instead of giving the sort of rubber stamp to putting houses on you know every square inch of of a property there's now guidance and i should say it's not regulation it's guidance that the border supervisors is following whereby depending on where that particular property lies there be a certain amount of set-aside or land that's undeveloped around the the developed open space. So, so for example, if the land, let's say you have 100 acres and it's in what we call biological core, that's some of the more sort of high biodiverse areas, then the the recommendation to the Board of Supervisors is that they require that 80% of the land is set-aside as open space, mm-hmm. the 80% bio biocore. And uh, the sort of a, a step down from that is um, multiple use. And in multiple use, 66% of the land is recommended to be set aside as open space. And so that was really a fundamentally new and a really, really important um, part of the um, comprehensive plan process and the, the way that the board of supervisors Looks at development, and um, and so that that was really important, and that happened in 2001. So that was one prong, and then the second prong was the the um, the bond election in 2005 and the purchase of open space. And in that land purchase process, we now, in our department, my department, uh, natural resources, manage over 250 thousand acres of land. We purchased about 70,000 acres of what we call fee title. So we own that land. And then also, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the lands that we purchased are also ranch lands. And for folks who don't know, most ranches, almost all ranches in Arizona have an element of sort of private land and lease land, either leased from the state of Arizona or from the federal government, from the BLM. Forest Service, and so we have these thirteen active cattle ranches. They all have, um, well, I guess one exception. They, but most of them have have leased land associated with them,
0: mm-hmm. and this is grazing uh, land for grazing, of course.
1: Yeah. So we have we have grazing that that currently takes place on those lands.
0: Mm-hmm. And how does it work uh, when you purchase a property? The leases are somehow attached to that or written into all of that, or how does that work? Yeah.
1: Mo- the, yeah. The existing, we just assume the, the lease that um, is associated with the private lands.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I see.
0: So it, it seems to me too, then that, I mean, obviously there's a, a good deal of a geographic information that goes into uh, nuanced geographic information that goes into all of this planning, is the county part of the collecting of that information? Does the county give grants to researchers to go out? And I mean, I know that's a big part of what you've done over the years is monitoring and basically observing in the landscape. Can you talk a little bit about how that process figures into all of this?
1: Yeah, we do. We do a lot of condition assessment out there. I mentioned the, the range program does on the ground monitoring to make sure that what we call utilization so that there's not overgrazing of, of the important um, grazing grass species. So it's one example. We also do remote sensing, um, looking for um, important trends, especially in the last 20 years, we've been in just this gripping drought and that's impacted a lot of our resources as well. And we have to balance the, the drought conditions that we see with the, with the grazing. Mm -hmm. Uh, So yeah, we have to, we have to get boots on the ground. We have to see what's going on in these properties. We have over 120 properties, different properties that we, we manage. So there's a, it's a big lift to make sure that there aren't things that are happening on that property that we don't know about trash dumping, OHVs, you know, people cutting our fences. We, we get that stuff all the time. So Mm -hmm. have to boots on the ground, remote sensing, a lot of GIS information, that we use to um, to make sure that we're that we're we're doing a good job as stewards
0: and so all of this then I know that you've talked about this before the there is the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan writ large but there's also the multi-species conservation plan um, that's part of it and this was something that was what finalized in 2016 can you talk about the relationship between the SDCP and the multi-species plan? What is, how do, how do these parts of, the, of this work?
1: So the SDCP is really our umbrella plan. This is really the community's plan. And and I, I do wanna just sort of get back to that for just a second and just to highlight and reiterate that like the, the reason that the county embarked on the SDCP was because the community wanted to have the conversation. The community wanted to have a solution, a very comprehensive solution. And so the SDCP really covered a broad range of resources and a broad geography, brought in a lot of different voices into the conversation. Mm-hmm. That's our big umbrella plan. That's the big banner under which I work and, and everyone at, who works in the environmental sort of area within the county um, works under. The MSCP, a multi-species conservation plan, is the regulatory side of, of the SDCP. I mentioned at the very beginning, talk about the pig meow and the listing of the pygmy owl, And the MSCP is really kind of addressing that regulatory piece of the conservation plan, whereby we have a, a suite of species 36 species that are covered under this MSCP it's a it's 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 a little bit technical so I'll I'll try to sort of break it down as simple as I can which is we have these 36 species we have this permit for 30 years and basically what it means is that development activities and this includes the private sector development county development they they can proceed along the you know the the timelines that they need to proceed on, um, and so there's loss of of loss of habitat for those particular species.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, there's something in the Endangered Species Act. Not to get too far into weeds here, but there's something in the Endangered Species Act called the Section 10. Section 10 says you can't impact, you can't just go willy nilly impacting habitat of endangered species unless you have a plan to avoid, minimize, and mitigate for those impacts. Mm -hmm. And the MSCP is really our plan for avoiding, minimizing, and mitigating for for the development activities. Mm -hmm. So I talked about the land purchases that the county has done since 2005. All of those lands, tens of thousands of acres of land are being used to offset the development activities that occur on the private sector and the county. So, for example, if uh, the county disturbs 10 acres of land in the biocore, I mentioned biocore was one of the more sort of important and biodiverse areas. So if we build a road, we impact 10 acres. We have to turn around on the in the regulatory side of things. We have to turn around and we have to protect in perpetuity 50 acres of land in Um, somewhere else in the county. And because we asked the development community to leave 80% set aside, we're using those same ratios of four to one or five to one. So for every acre that's being developed, we actually have to protect four or five acres somewhere else in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. And so we're leveraging through in the regulatory side of things, we're leveraging the land that was purchased through the STCP process for our regulatory needs
0: i see mm-hmm. so this is the instrument by which the the sort of rubber meets the road of the whole thing because that's right it gives the you comply with the requirements of the fish and wildlife or the or the listing rather uh on the one hand and then the developers actually have and the county have some certainty in the um in the process and so they can expect something they they, they have information they can act on basically
1: yeah, that's right. Exactly. And, 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 you know, if you're, if you're a business person and you, you know, uncertainty, you, you do not like uncertainty. And so having, having this in place, knowing that you, you don't have to go in and monitor for two years or, you know, make sure the pig owl is not there. And if it's there, then you got to stop developing that uncertainty is, is the enemy of, of um, you know, a lot of these processes and, and plans and so we're providing that certainty saying, look, we will cover the endangered species element of your project. There are other regulations and so forth. But for the endangered species part of it, we'll cover that. Mm-hmm. Uh, your plan, your uh, development can go forward. And then on the in the back end, we'll go off and we will um, preserve in perpetuity these, these conservation lands elsewhere.
0: Mm-hmm. It's kind of the pact. That the county has made with with uh, well the housing development sector, basically.
1: It's it's uh, it's an important service.
0: Do you think that um, you know after all of these years now, so a little bit less than twenty or around twenty years hence? Do you think that, are we bumping up against the edges of our develop, developable land here in Pima County or what's happening there?
1: Well, I, I think wherever you have private land, you, you are allowed, the Arizona constitution allows you to develop those lands. So we will, we will continue to see development in the hinterlands, well, there's there's nothing we're going to do or can do to stop that. But w- one of the things that we're trying to do, and this came out in the SDCP process, is that as a county, we um, are in a much better position to provide services to our constituents Constituents, excuse me. If if the if the constituents live relatively close to the urban core of, of Tucson, Marana, Saurita, etc., so. We don't, for example, require any set-asides. I was mentioning set-asides earlier, biocore and, and multiple use. We don't require set-asides within the larger urban core. And, and that's because we really want to encourage development. Really, we really want to encourage a more compact urban form. Because if we've got to provide, you know, the sheriff, sending the sheriff out, to, to On a call, it's it's a lot harder to get out to some of these really really ur- rural areas. Um, as just an example of sort of the cost, and we we recognize that what we call wildcat development, you know, way out in the hinterlands, is really is really as much more difficult to provide services um, out there. And so we want to encourage development within the existing development footprint. I see.
0: Uh-huh. So this plan really uh, hits kind of strikes a chord across multiple keys in this larger, um, this larger chessboard, basically, to, to use a lot of mixed metaphors there. <laughs> I, think the, I think the economic argument
1: from the perspective of the Board of Supervisors back in the day was, was one of the more powerful arguments for this plan, really creating a much more, more compact and urban environment that we can um, provide services to and good services to
0: what would tucson look like uh, if this whole process had not occurred this plan were not in place at this point
1: it's it's difficult it's difficult to say uh we're doing some analyses right now about the the impact of 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 our conservation land system that's the cls which is kind of what i was talking about the biocore and the and the um multiple use and so forth we're doing an, an evaluation right now um it's We only have a sample size of one, if you will, not to use too much science jargon. Mm -hmm. But we we don't really know. There's lots of factors, uh, jobs, um, you know, gas prices play a role, and where people live. The the, there there are a lot of other factors, and we we won't really know. Um, But what we do know is that the community has really embraced the plan, and that they really appreciate having continued access to open space they certainly we've seen during this pandemic the, the incredible use of our open spaces sometimes the abuse but certainly seeing the value of nature in people's you know mental emotional health and we we've just We just continue to find new applications for this general approach of of taking a holistic view of natural resource conservation, cultural identity and preservation, celebration of natural and cultural. I mean, it's just there's so many different offshoots of this that are just paying dividends, I think, for. our community and that we're really proud of the work that we're doing. And, and I think the community is really proud of our work.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that's true. And I I think that there's, you know, there, it seems to me that, of course, my bubble is pretty limited. um, But I do, I do believe that there's a lot of, there's a broad consciousness about, about this, this program and what the county has done uh, over these years. And, and, And well, not just the county, but you know, this broad coalition of, of actors across, across Tucson.
1: Yeah. And I think what we're seeing, it, there, there's a lot of turnover in Tucson in terms of population. So we, we go out to, we go out to, I did, I did an event uh, outreach event just a couple weekends ago. And a lot of people had not heard about the Sonoran Desert conservation plan. And maybe that's okay. I think what they know and appreciate are, are the, um, are the ideas and the realities that that came out of the plan, mm-hmm. this idea of integration, the idea of of bringing nature into the urban space. So we have the properties, for example, in the in the urban environment and exurban environment. Uh, we have different projects where we're releasing uh, threatened and endangered um, fish, uh, for example, in the Santa Cruz River. And that's an exciting story. So there's a lot of things that are kind of building on that foundational work that we did, that we're now seeing the community embracing.
0: Yeah, right. And, the, and in particular, I think the um, the example, the incredible example of people coming together across some pretty big divides, and and really being committed to, you know, being in service of this community by working out a plan, you know, that 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 does protect so much so much open space. I think I really feel like it's I know we talked about this before. It seems like it's a pretty unique example uh in the United States, definitely in Arizona. Def- or Definitely in the Southwest, I would say.
1: Yeah, it, it it was um really it had nothing like this has happened in, in Arizona. We we have, you know, Maricopa County has a, some some natural resource parks and there's nothing like it.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I want to ask you, and I I don't think we should end on this necessarily. So maybe we'll have a little more time to ask about causes for hope, but I do want to ask over the course of the 20 some odd years that this plan has um, been either in place or in motion, at least, we've also been in a profound uh, period of drought in the Southwest. And we, anybody who's been in Tucson for, you know, 10 to 20 years or longer feels the impact of that and in, in multiple ways, but including the, the lack of rain in both the monsoon season and, and with the exception of last year. And in particular, I feel in the winter time, I just feel like when I first moved to Tucson in the, what, I guess I was here first in the early nineties, that, that the winter rains just seemed much more reliable and much more sort of uh, consistent um, than they are now. So I'm just wondering, you know, as you've been working on this program, working for the county out, um, really out and seeing what's happening across the the diverse landscapes, um, what can you say about this, uh, about the drought and its effects on on these lands that we have been trying to protect and preserve? It's, it's
1: pretty profound, Jeff. A couple of examples that, that I'll, I'll give you. And, and of course, it's not just a lack of rain, but the, the temperatures, the increase in high temperatures. And, and one of the untold stories of climate change is the dramatic increase in low temperatures. Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing is in a lot of the what we call ecotones, these these sort of dividing lines, so they're not ever lines, they're just sort of dividing areas between one habitat type and another.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, for example, we see a lot of die-off in oak trees in the lower elevations where oaks occur. We have a, a property out in, um, to the southeast of, of Tucson. And I could take you out there and just show you that almost every single oak is dead or, or dying. If mm-hmm. you look at our riparian areas and our the amount of water that we have in, in our in our streams has declined, you know, incredibly since the 1980s. We've been monitoring, and this is a really interesting project is that we the county's been monitoring the extent of surface water at Seneca Creek Preserve since the 1980s. And um, it's gone from about nine and a half miles of perennial water. So perennial being of course, year round, nine and a half miles to, um, less than a half of a mile last year. So when you get that, of course you get reduction in habitat for fish and frogs and so forth. So it's, it's been, it's been absolutely, um, dramatic. We're seeing a loss of vegetation cover in, 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 um, in a lot of areas. And, and so therefore we're getting a lot of sediment in our river bottoms and this will cost us a fair amount of money as we, we need to keep those, some of those river bottoms like the Rito and the Santa Cruz um, we need to get the sediment out. So, and of course we have had the fires in, the, in, the, in the Bighorn fire in 2020. So yeah, Jeff, it's, it's, it's profound and it's important um, conversation about the future and and, and what will these lands that we protect in particular, you know, for, as land managers, what do we need to be planning for for the future as it gets hotter and hotter? And uh, it appears, doesn't appear like the winter rains are, are coming back anytime soon. And now there's uncertainty about the monsoon rains. Remember, you remember 2021 was the, we called the, the nonsoon, um, or excuse me, 2020 was the, yeah. the monsoons just never came it is definitely challenging from a land management perspective. And I know that just there's a general sort of malaise about, you know, what is happening, what's going on. Um, so it's Mm -hmm. challenging. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. To say the least. Yes. Yes. And I mean, I think it's clear. I think that to many people that, uh, you know, the, that we can no longer sustain and expect the things that many of us have enjoyed um, in, in this environment going forward, that that there is a kind of a radical restructuring that's being imposed upon everyone <laughs> at this moment. Of course, you know, that that hits people um, in different positions differently. You know, we, we're in the same circumstances, but we're experiencing the effects, you know, pretty differently depending on, you know, our access to wealth and capital and, and where we are. Um, but the but Tucson feels like it's definitely in a kind of a climate change um, bullseye in many ways because we have very little surface water. We're largely dependent, almost wholly dependent on the Colorado River. I mean, I look around and I, and I, you know, I hear, including water managers at the at the state and local level, saying, "Oh, it's okay. We're going to be okay." And I just, I have a hard time believing that.
1: Yeah, I'm certainly not a water policy expert. My understanding is that we do have fairly deep aquifers here you know we do have we have we have a lot of water sitting under our feet here um, but it takes a lot of power to get that water out and that speeds back into the whole climate change you know needing more more power to draw water out and uh, Mm -hmm. it's it's a feedback cycle and so when you talk about water you also have to talk about power and the fact as you mentioned the colorado river and and pumping all that water uphill to tucson um, is, is definitely a concern we, I, you know, I, I know that we certainly have more than a decade of water. We've got decades, but it is, it is part of a, a larger conversation about solutions mm-hmm. and, um, you know, just kind of swing it back to the, to the SDCP is the value or the, excuse me, the lesson I think of the SDCP are really, you know, we don't have to ignore these problems we we can have conversations about them we're bringing people to the table to have those conversations they can be hard and contentious and and they're important they're important conversations and and one of the reasons why I'm really proud to work for Pima County is that you know we weren't afraid to have that conversation we weren't afraid to get it to get it going and Mm -hmm. to Provide a, a platform for the community to have that conversation,
2: mm-hmm. and so
1: I think of as we look out into some of the the wicked problems that of of climate change and and other things that spin off from that even, um, they are huge and and um, really proud to work for an organization that that is really starting to chip away at at some of these kind of a bigger picture issues and doing what we can. Mm-hmm. the level of the scale and level we can to address them.
0: Is there, a, does it seem to you that there's sort of a new conversation in formation around, around these issues? I mean, it's, of course, you know, the um, turn of the millennium in uh, 2000 is is a very different moment um, than the one we're in now. But of course, the one we're in now is deeply shaped by that history. But what, you know, if you look at as you're looking around, is this kind of what you see in this history of the county being able to bring people together? Is this something that gives you hope that we can actually kind of catalyze and keep the conversation going?
1: It is, and then, you know, I'm also hopeful that we, what we see out there, right? What I'm seeing out there right now is that there are a lot of people who are really willing to be part of the solution. So for example, Invasive species and I haven't even mentioned invasive species um, you know they they're a big problem we have buffalo grass here in particular in our region and over the last 20 years we tens we've had tens of thousands of hours of volunteer time to help eradicate help reduce the buffalo grass threat in our region you know when people come out on their free time to be part of a project to to restore a spring to pull buffalo grass to monitor fish you know it just it really it really does give me a lot of hope that people here care they're willing to put their time in they're they're willing to support the efforts that we're doing for example and uh and that that's what i I remain incredibly hopeful just for the community's response to the work that we're doing and their support of it
0: yeah, so it's, it's actually more than just a conversation. It's a, there's a action. lot
1: of, yeah, action. Yeah, there's there's real action going on. And, and you know, some of the things we're going to do, we're going to try things and, and we're, we're not going to succeed, but we're, we'll do our best to plan as well as we can and, and um, you know, really engage in the process. And, um, you know, we'll do our best. And as long as we have the support of the community, I, I feel again, I feel hopeful.
0: Yeah, Brian, is there uh, anything that you'd like to you'd like for listeners to know that we didn't cover in our conversation?
1: Well, maybe swinging it back uh, just really quickly, Jeff, to the, the what feels like a, a really different political time um, now, maybe.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I wanna just make note that the Sonora Desert Conservation Plan was a bipartisan. Effort. It was adopted unanimously by a board of supervisors that was both Democratic and Republican. And in fact, Ann Day, who represented District One, uh, Republican, uh, when she was asked a few years after she left the board of supervisors, what was you know your number one accomplishment? I I, I've heard that she said that Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan. And so it really it really crossed. political divide and um i i still hold out a lot of hope and belief that a lot of the solutions that we're working on now they they're not political in the sense that they're they're holding a space for the health of our community the health of our environment and um and that uh and that's that's such a great thing
0: Mm yeah yeah well, Brian, I think uh, that's a pretty good place to end it. I just, um, I really want to thank you for all the work you've done over these many years for the for sustaining biological life in our county. Uh, and also want to just um, acknowledge and appreciate um, our friendship over all these years as well. It means very much to me.
1: Yeah, thank you, Jeff. It's been great talking with you. And, and um, you know, I definitely... I appreciate your words of, of appreciation for the work I've done, and I, I'm so fortunate that I have an incredible group of people I work with here at the county and in the broader community working on these issues. There's, it's just such an incredible community here, and gives me a lot of um, buoyancy in, in, in my life and in the work I do, and it's just, it's just so powerful. And um, thank you, Jeff.
0: Yeah, well, thanks to you and all your collaborators.